there's a kind of awkwardness that lingers in the backdrop of classical Greek philosophy. And it has to do with the relationship between philosophy on the one hand and Greek religion on the other. As we've seen, the early philosophers were after wisdom or the first and ultimate principles and causes of fundamental reality. And this eventually led the best of them to posit some supreme principle that was immaterial, unchanging, and eternal. The one over the many, the, the source of sameness, indifference, the permanence and change. But what were they to do with the sprawling pantheon of Greek gods? The philosophers certainly couldn't identify the gods with the supreme principle of reality because they simply did not fit the bill. The gods were, well, a lot like us, only writ large. Although immortal and powerful, the gods were finite, localized, mutable, fallible, even petty and self-indulgent. So the awkward problem was this. What did Zeus, Hera, Poseidon, and the rest have to do with the universal principle of all that has ever been and all that will ever be? The peculiar relationship between the gods and the ultimate principles can be seen in the early writings of the poets, such as Hesiod and Homer. The gods, though they exercise some control over the lives of men, are nevertheless themselves also subject to the unyielding decree, fate. So for the early philosophers, and especially for Plato, there was really only one place for the gods. Like humans, they too had to be subordinated to the eternal, the perfect, the immutable principle which exists at the summit of being. To the mind of Plato and many of the Greeks, whatever was at the summit of being was itself divine, but it wasn't a god, not at least in any way like the Greek gods were gods. Now, you may well wonder what use or purpose there was for the Greek gods. Why not just get rid of them? Well, among the myriad of shortcomings displayed among the gods, they had one thing going for them that warranted their existence. They were personal beings. For the philosopher, the ultimate principle and cause may hold pride of place, existing as it does at the summit of being. But it wasn't the kind of thing that seemed sufficient to account or to explain the reality of human consciousness, of intellect and will. The gods then were retained because they filled this explanatory void. They related and inter interacted with the human race. They could be appealed to as an explanation for human affairs. They could be petitioned for guidance and aid. And unlike the universal principle at the summit of all being, which seemed to function like an impersonal law, the gods were near. They were involved. They were relatable. The gods were the crude expression of the fact that since man is a person with an intellect and will, a someone rather than a something, the ultimate explanation of man's destiny must rest with an intellect and will, a someone rather than a something. So the Greek philosophers were at a loss with how to identify their principles with their gods and their gods with their principles. They needed them both, but they could not bring them together. Enter Aristotle. Aristotle was arguably the first to attempt the conjunction of the notion of the first principle with the notion of God. Now, this is debatable. Some think that Plato had attempted this before Aristotle with his idea of the good, but we'll leave that debate uh, to one side for now. As we saw in the last episode, Aristotle reasons his way from the phenomenon of change and movement in the world to the existence of an eternal, immaterial, immutable source of change and movement, an unmoved mover or a being of pure actuality. 
However, unlike those who preceded him, Aristotle went further and identified this first cause and principle of movement with God. The prime mover for Aristotle just is the supreme God. So the Greek pantheon of gods had now become obsolete, at least for Aristotle, because at the summit of reality, there was not just a supreme idea or a law-like principle or cause, but an ultimate being, a supreme God. On the face of it, it seems as if Aristotle had pulled off what the other Greek philosophers had failed to do. He successfully combined the idea of the gods of religion with the first principle of philosophy. On closer inspection, however, Aristotle's synthesis leaves much to be desired. Consider, for example, uh, the way that he describes his supreme God. He says God is a self-subsisting and eternal act of thinking, or the divine self-thinking thought, or a self-thinking principle. These are hardly the way anyone would define the word God traditionally. Consider that since Aristotle's God is a self-thinking thought, it cannot be said to know anything but its own thinking. It therefore cannot be said to know things in the world. And since for Aristotle, the universe is eternal, it's always existed. His God is in no sense a creator. In fact, he's really not even an efficient cause of anything in creation, but exists only as a final cause that moves everything in the world indirectly and only insofar as all things are drawn to it and are thus moved by desire towards this supreme being. And since Aristotle's God does not know the world, does not create the world, and exercises no causal power on or in the world, it follows from this that he cannot be said to be, um, he cannot be said to providentially govern the world, let alone to, uh, to hear or answer prayers. So at the end of the day, even Aristotle's God seems to be a lot more like a something rather than a someone. The prime mover is not in any way personal or involved in the affairs of the world of men. Now, Aristotle may have achieved a kind of rational theology, but he did so at the cost of a dead religion. The failure of the Greeks to find an adequate synthesis of their philosophy with their religion was actually not the fault of their philosophy. In my opinion, Plato, Aristotle, and later Plotinus all pushed philosophy as far as it could go, given the presuppositions that they were working with. What the Greeks really needed was not a new philosophy. They needed a new religion. Of course, Greek religion wasn't the only one on offer in the world during the lifetimes of Plato and Aristotle. Although virtu virtually every other religion in existence at the time in the Western world was also uh, polytheistic, there did exist an obscure people of an insignificant tribe who dwelled in a tiny region of Palestine called Judea, who were known as Jews. And they worshipped a God of a very different sort than those worshipped by the Greeks. The Jewish God isn't just one among many, or even the highest among many. He's the one and only, the sole supreme being over the entirety of the universe. Beside him, there is no other. And the name of this God is totally and radically unlike the names of any of the myriad of gods on offer in the world. 
When in Exodus chapter 314, Moses asks God for his name, God responds by saying simply, I am. The God of Israel doesn't just exist as all other gods claim to do, but rather he identifies himself as existence itself. God's name is he who is. And with the God of Israel, we have reached a summit of being that is greater than that which is reached through the philosophy of the Greeks. The best that Greek philosophy can deliver is a first principle that grounds the intelligibility of the world and that accounts for its dynamism and change. A first principle that, as we've seen, is pure and one and immutable and eternal and good. But the God of the Jews is something even more ultimate than this. The I am doesn't just ground the intelligibility of the world and account for its continued motion and change. The God of Israel brings the world itself into being from nothing and sustains it in being for as long as it is. God is not just the highest and first cause. He's the maker of heaven and earth. He's not just the prime mover. He's the creator. And unlike Aristotle's God, who is detached, unaware, and uninvolved in the world of beings, the I am of Israel is also the personal God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. This God is not just a something, but a someone. Not a, a that which is, but he who is. Here is a God who could be properly identified with the first cause and highest principle. Conscious human existence could now be accounted for and explained by an ultimate principle that was at once intellect and will. Only with the God of Israel can the first principle of religion and the first principle of philosophy truly meet. The early Christians were well aware that the God revealed in Scripture casted a profound light upon the philosophy of the Greeks, and they wasted no time pointing this out. To the mind of the philosophically inclined follower of Christ living in the Greco-Roman world, the revelation of Scripture was precisely what was needed to provide philosophy with its truly highest possible cause and its most ultimate principle. So rather than being treated by Christian theologians uh, as obsolete or irrelevant, Greek philosophy was expanded and progressed by them using the light of faith. And rather than being extinguished by the Christian faith, philosophy was vigorously carried forward in service to the faith. And like the Greek philosophers before them, Christian theologians were also in pursuit of wisdom. But they believed that there was a still higher wisdom than philosophical wisdom. The wisdom that the Christian theologians were pursuing wasn't a different or distinct wisdom from that which the Greeks were after. It was, in fact, one with philosophical wisdom, insofar it was in pursuit of the same truth. And yet it was higher than philosophical wisdom, insofar as the truth that it considered was itself revealed by the God, who is at once the first cause and the ultimate principle that the philosophers themselves were groping for. So to the Christian theologian, then, Philosophy was no longer the highest science that a man could engage in. Theology was now the queen of the sciences, and philosophy was now the handmaiden of theology.
notion of theology as the queen of the sciences was widespread and prevalent from the time of the church fathers onward. It's not, however, a common way of speaking about theology today. And that's because the term science is used by us in a much more restricted way than it was used in the past. Science in the modern sense refers narrowly to the physical sciences in particular, as they've been developed to study the physical world, and insofar as they deploy the scientific method of empirical investigation. However, prior to the scientific revolution, the word science had a much broader meaning, and it included disciplines that are not today considered to be properly scientific in nature. Things like ethics, mathematics, metaphysics, these were all considered to be sciences in the classical period. The original Greek word from which we get our English term science is episteme, which is literally translated as knowledge or understanding. Episteme was a broad term in the classical and Christian period that covered any body of knowledge that was organized around a particular subject matter and according to basic causal priorities and principles. So in the pre-modern period, science could be defined as an organized body of knowledge developed to understand a given subject. Now, theology is clearly a science in this classical sense of the word. It has a unique and particular subject matter that it studies, God, or our relationship to him. And it's organized around a certain body of knowledge, scripture. The theologian is therefore engaged in the science of theology, insofar as he studies God in creation, using scripture as both his starting point and the principle of his organization. There is, of course, a very important way in which theology is unique among the sciences as classically defined. Unlike other sciences, which are derived from evidential or empirical knowledge, the science of theology is completely derived from revealed knowledge. The principles of all other sciences come from the light of reason, whereas the principles of theology come from the light of faith. The medieval theologians referred to theology as the science of sacred doctrine. And they held that it was a science superior to all other sciences. And this both because of the certainty of its truth and the nobility of its subject matter. Thomas Aquinas, the greatest of the medieval theologians, is representative of this idea. He writes, quote, among the speculative sciences, one is more noble than the other, both because of its certitude and because of the proper nobility of its subject matter. The science of sacred doctrine exceeds the other speculative sciences in both regards. It exceeds them in certitude because the other sciences have their certitude from the natural light of human reason, which is able to make mistakes, whereas sacred doctrine has its certitude from the light of God's knowledge, which cannot be deceived. And it exceeds them in the nobility of its subject matter, since this science is principally about things that transcend reason in their loftiness whereas the other sciences consider only those things that fall under reason, end quote. To the mind of the classically thinking Christian then, theology is not just one science among others. It's the highest possible science or the queen of the sciences, since it represents knowledge that has been revealed or disclosed by God himself. Now, because theology or sacred doctrine has as its subject matter God, and because, as we've seen, the God of Scripture is also the absolute first cause and ultimate final principle for the existence of everything that's not himself, it follows that theology is not only the highest possible science, it's also the highest possible wisdom. 
Aquinas continues, quote, among all human wisdoms, sacred doctrine constitutes wisdom in the highest sense, not just wisdom in some genus, but wisdom absolutely speaking. For since it is the function of the wise man to order and to judge, and since judgment is made about lower things in light of a higher cause, the wise man, with respect to any given genus, is the one who carefully considers the highest cause in that genus. Therefore, the one who considers the absolutely highest cause of the entire universe, God, is called wise in the highest sense. End quote. To better understand the relation between theological wisdom and philosophical wisdom, consider the distinction made by theologians between natural theology and sacred doctrine. When it comes to knowledge of God, there are two sources of information. Natural theology is knowledge about God derived from human reason, working from the natural order. In the first chapter of the book of Romans, Paul writes this, quote, For the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men, who by their unrighteousness suppress the truth. For what can be known about God is plain to them, because God has shown it to them. For his invisible attributes, namely his eternal power and divine nature, have been clearly perceived ever since the creation of the world in the things that have been made. So they are without excuse. For although they knew God, they did not honor him as God or give thanks to him. But they became futile in their thinking, and their foolish hearts were darkened." End quote. According to the Apostle and the teaching of the historic church, there are things we can come to know about God simply by reflecting on the natural order and then reasoning back to its cause. Natural theology is the do domain of philosophical investigation. And as we've seen, many pagan philosophers were able to reach true conclusions about the nature of the first cause and ultimate principle simply by engaging in careful rational reflection on the things that had been made. Now, sacred doctrine, on the other hand, is knowledge about God derived from divine revelation in Scripture. Scripture, both the Old and New Testaments, is a divine self-disclosure. It is God revealing himself to us, a revelation that ultimately culminates and crescendos in the person of Jesus Christ. Now, when it comes to knowledge of God, there can be no clearer or trustworthy source than God's own testimony concerning himself, which is why, as we've seen, theology is the queen of the sciences. Now, naturally, we would expect there to be things revealed by God to us in Scripture that go beyond what human reason alone could come to know on its own. And this is precisely what we find. We find out, for example, that God exists as a trinity, uh, that God the Son has become incarnate in Jesus Christ, that he has provided a way of salvation by means of atonement, and so on. And none of these things are truths that we could come to know by the light of reason alone. So although philosophers can learn many true things about God, even truths that are also revealed in Scripture, there are some truths that lie beyond our ken, truths that are known only because God has revealed them to us in Scripture. Obviously, then, for the Christian, philosophy could only ever play second fiddle to theology. But this fact does not mean that philosophy is useless to the theologian or of little value to him. On the contrary, for most of Christian history, philosophy has been utilized 
as an important asset and tool of theology and has played a central role in the formation, the clarification, and the defense of Christian doctrine. And it's for this reason that philosophy was given the honorary Latin title, Ancilla Theologiae, which in English means handmaiden of theology. Although today there is a widespread and general suspicion of philosophy among Protestant theologians, seminary professors, and pastors, the greatest theologians of the past, both Catholic and Protestant, have enthusiastically adopted the best philosophy available to them and pressed it in service to faith. We can see the fruitful interplay of philosophy and theology in the work of the two greatest theologians of the patristic and the medieval period, Augustine of Hippo and Thomas Aquinas. Augustine adopted Plato's philosophy, especially as it was developed by a later thinker named Plotinus, and he skillfully modified it and pressed it in service to the Christian faith, advancing both philosophical and theological inquiry in the process. Aquinas would later do the same thing with the philosophy of Aristotle. Aquinas had the great advantage of access to a wide range of philosophical perspectives that had been worked out by Christian, Muslim, and Jewish philosophers. In my opinion, the philosophical theology of Thomas Aquinas represents the high water mark of Christian thinking when it comes especially to the doctrine of God. I don't believe that it's possible to attain a more exalted and transcendent, and yet at the same time, intimate and imminent view of God than that which is presented to us in the works of Aquinas. So in, in stark contrast to so many Protestant thinkers today, the greatest theologians of the past did not hesitate to assign philosophy a pride of place as the handmaiden of theology. But what does that look like? How can philosophy be useful and informative for the Christian faith? Well, one way in which philosophy has been extremely useful and important is in regard to the formulation of Christian creeds. In their effort to combat heresies and to protect uh, the authority, authoritative teaching of Scripture, the historic church has issued statements of faith or creeds defining its position on various doctrines. And very often these creeds would borrow terms, phrases, and ideas from philosophy in order to articulate their positions and to explain the meaning of some biblical teaching. Philosophy is also necessary for the defense of the Christian faith or apologetics, since outside of revealed religion, the question of God's existence is a strictly philosophical question. Arguments for the existence of God and responses to arguments against the existence of God will be fundamentally philosophical in nature. And this is why philosophers make for the best apologists. And it's also why if you want to be a good apologist, you really need to get trained in philosophy. Now, most importantly, philosophy plays a critical, if often overlooked role in the formulation of theology. Now, there are many ways in which philosophy is absolutely crucial and even unavoidable for the task of theology. And I'll eventually dedicate an entire episode to showing how. But let me just say this in summary. The Bible is not a work of systematic theology. It's obviously not a work of philosophy, for that matter. The Bible is a complex book written by over 40 different authors in all sorts of literary genres and styles. And it was composed over a period of 1,500 years. 
Piecing together what the breadth of scripture says about any given subject is the task of systematics. And it's one that requires careful interpretive skill. But at the end of the day, how we decide to approach various genres and how we prioritize certain verses over others is going to come down to an interpretive framework that we have to bring to the text of scripture. Unfortunately, the Bible just doesn't include a manual how to interpret itself. God has left this to us to figure out. Now, classically, the church has looked to the light of reason in general and to philosophy in particular to inform the hermeneutical framework it used to interpret scripture, especially when it comes to understanding, prioritizing, and interpreting the many texts throughout the Bible that describe the nature of God. Now, again, this is a big and controversial subject and one which I'll have much more to say in coming episodes. But let me conclude by stating this. If you're going to do theology, you are going to need philosophy. It's absolutely unavoidable. And if you have a poor grasp of philosophy or if you buy into bad philosophical ideas, your theology will, to that extent, suffer and be subject to many errors. As I noted at the beginning of this episode, the Jewish Christian revelation of God was the key to uniting the first principle of the Greeks, a something, to an intellect and will, a someone. This is a powerful example of the way in which theology enriches philosophy. I think that one way to understand part of what's going on for the first 1300 years or so of church history is to see it as the project of taking the best of pagan philosophy and perfecting it in the light of faith. And from a Christian perspective, the meeting of philosophy and theology has been immensely beneficial for the philosophical enterprise. But of course, the benefit, as we've now seen, goes both ways. Theology, too, in many respects, receives great support from philosophy. The theologians who were integrating philosophy with faith were not doing it to enhance philosophy as a distinct discipline. They were instead using philosophical insights in service to their faith. Aquinas, in particular, believed that grace perfects nature, and that revealed truth elevates natural reason, and that once elevated, natural reason can then turn to serve the faith. For Aquinas, the sanctification and integration of philosophy was a project that he carried out in fulfillment of and in obedience to the Apostle Paul's command in 2 Corinthians 10.5, to take every thought captive to obey Christ. Now, I believe that theologians, seminary professors, Bible teachers, and even pastors who neglect the hard-won philosophical theology from the past do so at their own impoverishment. It's high time that the Protestant church turned back to its roots in classical Christian philosophical theology. It's time for classical philosophy to once again take its place as the handmaiden of theology. 